1: Hello and welcome to Your Booked. I'm Daisy Buchanan and I'm delighted to return to your ears for a second series of sneaky shelfies, spine-chilling confessions and crimes of literary passion. I'll be introducing our fabulous guests shortly but firstly I'm thrilled to announce that my next book is coming out in March and we've teamed up with the Margate Bookshop to make sure there's a special discount for your booked listeners. The Sisterhood is my memoir, I love books about families, books about sisters and books about womanhood. And I've written a book about my relationship with my five younger sisters and how everything from our friendship to our fights has defined my relationships with other women. It's about challenging what we think we know about sisterhood and how contemporary womanhood is about seeking similarity while celebrating our differences. It's been described as the Mitford's Meets Fleabag and it's published by headline on March the 7th. The Margate Bookshop is one of my very favourite independent bookshops, and it's my local. It often pops up at the Turner Gallery, but you can visit it any time at themargatebookshop.com, where there's an eclectic and thoughtful curated selection. Whether you're looking for beautiful books about art and design, compelling novels, moving poetry, or books that are simply about the magic, despair, and everything in between that you experience from simply being alive, Throughout January and February, you can pre-order The Sisterhood from the Margate Bookshop and get a 20% discount across the site if you use the code BOOKED. If you prefer to buy books independently, this is a wonderful way to support a great bookseller and buying my book supports the podcast too. I'm so excited about The Sisterhood. I can't wait to hear what you think. And I can't wait to hear all about the treasures you discover at the Margate Bookshop now, back to this week's guest. I'm so excited to share this with you. It's a conversation with the award-winning journalist and author, Porna Bell. Porna wrote about her story in her acclaimed 2017 memoir, Chase the Rainbow, One Man's Journey with Mental Health and the Woman Who Loved Him, published by Simon & Schuster. The book is about her life and how she tragically lost her husband to suicide. This does come up, and I want to make you aware of that, just in case it is difficult to listen to. Through her writing and all of her work, Porna has become an extremely important voice in the mental health community, but Porna is in no way defined by tragedy. She's quick, she's clever, she's extremely funny and a must-follow on Instagram. She's at Porna Bell across social media, Porna has two O's, and I never dreamed someone could make a gym selfie, inspiring and witty, but she is my lycra-clad idol. Her new book, In Search of Silence, is published by Simon & Schuster in May and I'm so excited about it. She's using her characteristic compassion, wit and insight to explore the gap between the expectations we're supposed to have for ourselves and the reality of being alive. We recorded our interview at her home in Teddington. I wish you could see her stunning sideboard. I had furniture envy throughout. You might hear the odd plane noise. We were close to Heathrow and in a few flight paths. Horner, one of the first books that you have shown me, um, and normally I really have to dig deep <laughs> for people's sexy books, but you're like, here is this. This is uh, The Paradise of Desire, um, 3,000 Years of Indian Erotica by Amrita
0: Narayan. That... Narayan? No. Yeah, that's quite a mouthful, I think, even for me. Yeah. It's, the, uh, it's the double end. Sorry, no that's innuendo w. there. No, I should do oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
1: that. You know, yeah. Beating me to all the punchlines. So uh, when did this come into your possession?
0: so I bought this last year when I went on sabbatical and India was one of my places that I visited but because I was on sabbatical and I had to operate from quite a small suitcase I had to be really restricted with um, the amount of books that I wanted to buy because like a lot of book lovers I absolutely love buying books when I'm abroad for me India is a place that I visit regularly And unlike a lot of other places, English language books in India is a huge thing. And they do editions and they do books by Indian writers that you wouldn't necessarily get anywhere else. And I made the mistake of going into this bookshop in Calcutta, actually, where I was there for a few days and I clapped eyes on this baby. And I just thought, I'm never going to find this book anywhere else. If I try and buy it through Amazon, I'm going to end up paying over the odds for it. And the writing in it is just absolutely beautiful because it, what it does is it mentions um, texts about sex. Sorry, that sounded like the world's worst poem. But, um, but there are texts in there that um, come from this book, this very ancient book called The Rig Veda, which is thousands, I think it's like a 1700 BC old book. And for me, it's really important to feel quite connected to that part of my... So my parents are both... We're South Indian. And it's quite important to feel quite connected to that part of cultural heritage. And especially... like Indians and sex at the moment it's getting better but it can be quite prudish and it can be quite conservative and this book is just packed full of things from the Kama Sutra it's packed from um, you know modern writers and poets talking about sex and it's just a beautiful beautiful book and really opened my eyes actually to this massive heritage around I, I guess like how people's attitudes to sex have changed and there's something about A dildo made from buffalo horn in there as well.
1: Wow. (laughs) This is just um, having a bit of a flick there. Um, I'm sorry, now it's my turn to be embarrassed (laughs) about the innuendo.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's one of those books. It's not like I kind of read it and I'm like, oh, yeah, (laughs) yeah, now I'm in the mood. It's more like it just helps to connect me to this other part of me that is actually quite you know, full of feeling and Mm. thoughts and a lot of passion, um, but which I forget about when I'm, you know, working or going to meet mates or whatever. And I think it's just, as a lot of books are, I just think it's this very good way of unlocking parts of you sorry this is all sounding like some <laughs> really dodgy Mills and Boone but it unlocks parts of you darling <laughs> that may be hidden in secret no, it, it, in all seriousness it's it just... only
1: revealed in the light of the baby oil <laughs>
0: glinting through the but like... I mean, that is, that, that, seriously
1: that's such a beautiful yeah. concept I think and such mm. a generous one and something that I think we give a lot of yeah. lip service to, oh god here we go <laughs> We forget that I suppose that that generosity, and also I think we forget that our sexuality is so—it's an holistic thing. And I think I don't know if you agree with this, but sometimes I worry that now, when we know we talk about sex all the time, but it's often in a very very negative way, and especially because it, it's become so politicised and it's right that it is and it has to be and there have been so many problems for so long but what very little I've read of that beautiful book is just about a time of you know, people being being loving and loving of each other and of themselves
0: and being together. Yeah. And I think there are passages in there that definitely look at what it's like to be a couple or what it's like to be in a relationship. And there is definitely a female skew in that. Mm. But it's also about your relationship With yourself as a woman and how you connect to your sexuality and sensuality as well. And being able to do that in a way that isn't Mills and Booney Mm. or isn't, you know, oh, let's have a giggle. I realize we've giggled a lot in the last five minutes (laughs) around it, but that isn't um isn't making you feel ashamed about things. Um and I think that that the coming together of those two things, I think that book actually manages perfectly because The way that I think a lot of people view erotica, if they view erotica or think about it at all, is kind of pornography. And Mm, I don't... Quite prescriptive. Yeah, and that book for me isn't pornography. Mm. You're not necessarily reading the sex stories of Mm. other people. What you're reading is passages, whether that's prose or poetry... Um, that's actually about you as a person so that's why that's why it's there front and center on the main shelf I mean I had a good look and I found (laughs) no
1: porn only beautiful images yeah can you remember when you were growing up as a younger reader the first book that you ever encountered that sort of had that a similar impact on you the first thing where you thought there's probably a bit more to reading than I realized
0: (laughs) Well, I think for many of us, the gateway drug was Mills and Boone that our mothers owned. Um, as well as that, it was also just, you know, the Daniel Steele's. Uh, the... <laughs> were you reading mm. quite openly or were these no, books no. that you had to kind of these are, find these, in the This choir? was furtive, furtive reading. And I think Dolly may have said this when she chatted to you, but there was a, there was a bookcase in the house And you knew that those books were there. And I don't remember how this information trickled down to me, but I knew that those were the books, you know, that had certain passages Mm -hmm. in them. And, yeah, you would kind of go back and you would reread it and in your tiny brain try and make sense of what it was that you were reading feeling quite excited by it but not knowing why you felt quite excited about yeah. it and I guess because none of the other stuff that you were reading really addressed any of that
1: and what I love so much about mm-hmm. that time is about as all the, the descriptions where you, you don't really have a context for anything and the yeah. weird ideas you hold on to about sex for some some time because <laughs> that's the way things are budging and flowering and hardening and sort of the mental picture in your head is you know, it's yeah. like is there a spaceship in here, <laughs> or what's going on? Um, I wanted to ask you is so what you've got. Um, you've got some beautiful Murakami. You've got um, Men Without Women, which is possibly a
0: political. Yeah, theme. I
1: don't know. Is is that? Um, I've not actually read that one, but it's so a beautiful that,
0: that one I started. If I'm being very honest with you, I'm more in love with the cover than I am with the content. And I love Murakami, but he is kind of going the way of certain male authors once they hit a certain age where I used to love their early work and I would include, you know, Hanif Qureshi in this, Simon Rushdie, and their later work just seems to, like, not grip me as much. And that book, which the first story, I think, from what I remember in it, is basically a commentary on women drivers being fairly shit. (laughs) (laughs) And that was also, that was the only other book, apart from the Parrots of Desire, that I carted around in my suitcase oh, for eight months. So, you know, there was a lot invested Taking in that. Taking that valuable suitcase of <laughs> real estate. And I just, I just didn't love it. I mean, the first book I ever bought of his, which is on the other bookcase, um, which is, yeah. Over. As we uh, move over, is *Sputnik Sweetheart. And I didn't know, I didn't oh, know. Oh, God,
1: remind, is that when they're on the island? and he's Um, trying to find...
0: No, so this is... uh, It's set in Tokyo. It's this one. It's where um, there is an island involved, so they do go to Greece at one point, but it's about um, a young man who's in love with another woman who is in a relationship uh, with another woman. Oh, I
1: remember this one. This is
0: gorgeous. I don't know... I think there have been subsequent reissues, but I love this
1: set of editions of Murakami. The paperback, sort of black and white, the yeah, very sort of... Definitely... When I first came across these, I don't know how you feel, lots of very sexy, indie Asian ladies, all a bit manic pixie dream girly, which I thought, oh, that's really cool when I was 22. And now I feel a bit differently about.
0: Well, so his book, I don't often necessarily remember every place that I've bought my books, but I didn't know anything about him before I picked That up. So that's the first book of his that I've ever bought. Where did you
1: buy it from? When was this in your life? So this
0: was a very long time ago. I would say I was probably about 24, 25, and I had to go to, sorry, this is not the glamorous story you want. I had to go to Eileen Broadway to do an interview with someone, and they were late, and there was Waterstones there, and I just went in there to pass the time. And I was trying to find a book, but I think this was in the days before, yeah, obviously this was in the days before you had smartphones. So I couldn't really just instantly look stuff up and Mm. I didn't really have any recommendations. And I, that book just caught my eye and I don't know why, but I think, and this is sometimes, you know, power of a front cover and all of that. Um, Yeah. So I came across it, I read the back of it and I thought, okay, let me just see what it's like and I really liked the tone and the style of it which is actually what I love about a lot of his books it was just very comforting and it was very easy and it just I lost myself in it a bit and then I just bought everything else that he wrote and some of it's a bit hit and miss uh, and some of it's just brilliant
1: really interesting thinking about how rare that is do you Mm. do that often still do you just ever go into a bookshop and think
0: fancy that and so I think my sorry I've just noticed a very dodgy brown stain on the front cover which I think is chocolates. <laughs> um, well, this is, I love this because
1: it shows that you've had this book in your life for long enough to have really yeah, loved true. it and taken it places and i love a nice yeah a nice
0: worn book. Well I think that with my book choices these days so like a lot of people actually maybe I don't know where I'm plugging that out from that isn't even rooted in statistics I just made that up. What happened was I was very into studying English and I did English as a degree and I feel like I had a finite amount of serious books in me Mm. and analysis and I just ran out of steam after I left university. So at school, and even when I was really, really young, I just remember reading... um, like Perry Mason books when I was about nine. Now who the hell reads like a Perry Mason book?
1: Was that, had you seen Perry Mason on TV or did you just find it
0: one day and think, I like this? So uh, at that time I was living in India and those were just the books that were popular around that time. But I think nowadays I tend to choose books, either nonfiction that I think is an area that I want to know more about, or if it's fiction, I just want it to be a fairly Easy read. I'm being very honest here. Cerebral books at the moment. You want to be kind of consumed and transported. I do. A sort of lovely. I want to be entertained. Uh charmed. Yes, charmed. But I would say in a specific way, I don't do I like magical realism. I don't love escapism. So the difference obviously being that I don't mind if, I don't know, I'm reading a book and a goblin appears out of nowhere. I don't really want the kind of escapism which is like some very um extreme version of sex in the city mm. where i'm living a glamorous i'm reading a book about someone living a glamorous lifestyle and blah 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 like that doesn't connect i don't think that's ever really connected with me that's as right, a reader i think
1: i'm the absolute opposite
0: <laughs> where i all i wanted those
1: books where you know the really because i love a, a charming story and when you've got adorable goodies and really hateable baddies and when everybody gets rewarded and punished in a perfect way i'm like
0: i'm here for that and then a gnome comes i'm like, no thank you <laughs> See I can do it I can do all of that if it was set with gnomes if it... <laughs> not people oh can we next I know you know it's not like we've got much
1: on we've no. got quite, quite a schedule let's co-write a book <laughs> I will do the um, the escapism you bring the gnomes, gnomes
0: yeah or goblins mm.
1: I wanted to ask you about you as a young reader in India, because you've talked to me about the significance that books have in India and the way people read and people treat the books. Could you tell me about sort of things you remember reading and loving? Did you ever? This is. um, Have you always read
0: in English? Uh, So I don't read or speak any of, other yeah variations so, of that do so the place that, that really I'm
1: culturally insensitive
0: sorry no 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 don't worry so there are like a hundred odd languages in India and the two that we would speak in the area that I come from is Kannada which is indigenous to the state Karnataka which is where my parents are from and Hindi which is mainly a language of the north but it's the language that Bollywood films are in and you tend to find it's spoken more broadly but I was born and I grew up in England up to the age of seven. And then the idea was that my parents wanted us and my sister, who was already in India to all live in India and we were going to grow up there to have a better sense of our own identity because they didn't really want us to grow up as English kids.
1: Oh, so you, your sister wasn't there when you were... She was with my okay. grandparents,
0: yeah. So, um, so for, I think it was a couple of years before we moved over, she was already living there with my grandparents. And so the idea was that we were going to all move over there. And my dad was stuck back here because there was a really bad recession. This was like the end of the 80s. And so it was my mum and I who moved over there and we set up home with my sister and the idea was that once my dad sold his house, they were going to move, he was going to move over. But that just didn't really happen and we spent about five years in this limbo and then eventually my dad said, no, I can't work, can't work in India, so we're all going to have to move back to England, which is what we did. But that time, which was seven to twelve, which is quite a formative time in your life, it taught me a lot about, I think, the ideas of privilege that we have. And even when I compare our, like my sister and my experience to our British Asian friends that we have here is that, you know, I think satellite TV came in a couple of years after we'd moved there, but not everyone had it in their own house. Mm. So if you had a standard TV, um, you pretty much had the main national TV channel. So this is
1: when you would moved back to India? This is
0: when we moved back to this India. So way you way didn't, had, yeah, so the idea regular of telly. regular telly was not a thing. And books were always a massive part of... Uh, our upbringing, but it became even more so when we were there because you would buy, you know, buying books was super expensive, so I remember our mum taking us to libraries and just that that feeling that sensation, you know, when you knew you were going on a Saturday morning to pick up this whole bundle of books that you could then just get lost in on the weekend it's just, even when I think about it now, it's such a delicious feeling to be okay. able to do that. Is
1: this where you were getting the Perry Masons? <laughs>
0: The Perry Masons, but also comics. So we used to read a lot of comic books as well. So you
1: get comics from the library? So you
0: get comics from the library, yeah. So uh, so that was, there wasn't kind of a a one or the other. It was definitely a mixed bag of things. And obviously there were loads of lighter reading books and, you know, kind of preteen books that you would pick up as well. But I remember the thing I was telling you about was the sanctity around books that we learned there. So um, for a number of different reasons, my family are Hindu and, you know, uh, back in India as well, is that the, the the golden rule, you never, ever, ever put your feet on a book. So a book is considered to be this portal to knowledge, to education for so many Indians It's the way by which you kind of get ahead and you earn money so that you can buy food. And it literally boils down to as visceral a connection as that. So you never touch books with your feet and they're viewed as being, you know, this kind of like holy thing. And whether or not you believe that, I mean, I'm an atheist, but I remember when we came back to England and, you know, you would go around mates like your friend's houses And you'd see people like just kick a book out of the way with their foot. And even now, like as I'm telling you, Daisy, or just stepping on a book and you just can like for its anathema, you know, to do that to a book. But you couldn't really tell you. You couldn't say you've literally just done one of the worst things I've seen all year. But you couldn't really say that because then you'd have to go into this explanation and back then, you didn't necessarily feel that comfortable going into explanations like that. Because even now, yeah. I'm
1: thinking, because I keep so many books right by my bed, and yeah, I, know, yeah. I definitely, definitely yeah. have a bit of, you know, yeah. early morning stumbling, and I'm like, I will move those books. Yes. I feel very, I feel yeah. what you feel yeah. uh, very strongly. Mm. So it did, this idea of, the, you know, reading, being, and writing mm. being so special and sacred, and books being so significant, is that something that had an impact on you becoming a writer?
0: I remember really clearly I was about seven and it was one of those things where I had I'd been okay or fairly good with maths up until that point and fairly okay and good with English up until that point I don't really know what happened but my ability to do maths just dropped off a cliff and my ability to do English just kind of went you know up and up and it just was easy I enjoyed it um, and I really, really related to it. I couldn't really tell you why that happened. It's just that I enjoyed reading books. And then when we went on this, like, ghastly holiday when I was seven, and um, and this was in India, and I just remember being bitten a lot by mosquitoes, and the electricity was a bit dodgy, so there would be periods when it would cut out, and that meant no fans or aircon or whatever. And I just wrote about the entire experience and writing about it made me feel a lot better about the, you know, crappy holiday that we've been on. But also I then shared it with other people who then read it and they just started laughing at it. (laughs) (laughs) And it's there's a weird chemistry, a good kind of chemistry in writing something, seeing someone's reaction to it. And um, and seeing that it gives them some pleasure and realising that it's a two-way street. And actually, in addition to the pleasure that reading gives mm. me, writing kind of gives that back, in a way.
1: So that's amazing. Was that when you thought, what I'm doing it has a value beyond what I realise? Yes. I'm entertaining yeah. people with this and people are enjoying what I'm producing and it feels yeah. good. I do think that, I mean, God, family holidays, it was that weird period, wasn't it, where... You're like your holiday would somehow be worse than like your life. at <laughs> home. It wasn't life. a treat. It was the opposite. It was like, the point was like, oh, it, yeah. it was just nice to come back where you have yeah.
0: more electricity and more facilities and you're just less cramped. <laughs> and, and you don't have to sit in a soggy swimsuit. Yes. And I think it's just looking back now. Yeah, bitten on the arse. I know a lot. <laughs> I think looking back now, it's just you know you expected your parents to just have everything in hand. Mm. But of course they, I mean, I guess my mum would have been the same age. Oh my God, that's a horrifying thought. She would have been the same age that I am now when we were over there. Yeah, yeah, when we were over there. And I don't know how sufficiently I could organise a child's holiday. I mean, I'm pretty sure there'd be bits that I'd forget to do and this, that and the other. And yeah, to me, I just remember going on them thinking, I know this is supposed to feel like it's better than being back home but i kind of want to be back home sitting on my bed reading a book <laughs> and not being bitten so were there any particular books
1: or writers where you read their voice because uh, something that's come up a few mm. times is people reading books and thinking oh i didn't know you were allowed to write like this if you're allowed to write like this i can do it but you know having read books that were quite sort of dry and traditional was there anything that
0: really sparked that for you I don't, I don't know if it's quite that, but I remember the book that just changed everything for me, which, and I cannot remember the author's name, it's the guy who wrote NeverEnding Story. I remember coming to England and everyone had seen the film and they hadn't... I, I had to stop talking about this because it made me sound like the biggest nerd. But everyone had seen the film and so when they would talk about NeverEnding Story, I just thought that they were talking about the book and then obviously realised that they were talking about the film. And the reason why I was so horrified by this was because the book was just incredible for me. And I've reread it, you know, countless times. And it really was that stepping through a doorway into somewhere that is completely different, full of all of these fantastical things. And that showed me how it was possible to write things or a universe in which it didn't resemble my own, really, at all, in any way but it was the most magical thing I'd ever experienced and then I came back and everyone's like oh yeah I've seen the film and I was like it's not the same <laughs> it's not the same it's not the same But did, yeah. did you see the film and think
1: this is not how I imagined
0: it I watched about 10 minutes of it and I was like this is a pile of shit and I'm sorry <laughs> it is an insult to the book and it's memory
1: I'll be back to Porna shortly, but I want to tell you about my steal of the week, a book I loved so much that only paying the cover price feels like an act of theft. This week, it's The Hooger Holiday by Rosie Blake, which was published by Sphere in 2017. This is the charming story of Clara, who arrives in the gloomy village of Yawthorpe and spreads Scandinavian cosy cheer, turning everyone's lives upside down in the best possible way. I read this book one very gloomy afternoon and it should be available on the NHS for sad days. It really is a blissful sugar rush with absolutely no comedown. It's funny and satisfying and Clara is downright adorable. When the real world feels too much, we can go and live in the one that Rosie Blake has created. That's The hookah Holiday. It's published by Sphere and it's out now. Now back to Porno. Uh, On your (laughs) shelf, the um,
0: the writer I can see the most of, Terry Terry Pratchett. Tell me about him. Him, I don't remember when I first started reading him. I just, I think that it must have been quite a while ago when I was in my early 20s and I'm now 38. But I just remember thinking this is it. This is the perfect balance of how you write fantasy, but how you also stitch it together with the current real world that we're in. And I think he had such a talent for being able to do that. And those books that you see uh, dotted around in no particular order on the shelves, I must have reread each one of them about three or four times. And some of them belong to my late husband, Rob, who loved him as much as I did. And we used to do this thing where we'd buy the new book and then fight over who got to read it first. And he always won because he was a faster reader. So apparently, in some weird logic, I'd somehow get it faster. <laughs>
1: did you know when you met, mm. was he a writer you both had in common, or did one of you no, share him with the no other? No, no
0: idea. Yeah, no idea that he um, really loved him. And so I think it's because he also, he liked a lot of really crappy science fiction. I mean, we're talking about, you know, on the fringe of oddball universe and i i couldn't really stomach that kind of extreme science fiction fantasy but for me terry pratchett was um that perfect middle ground between all of that and i think the only the only time i ever met him which was at the british book awards which was however many years ago um i asked if we could take a photo and this was in the time when like cameras on your phones were really crap and it was really blurry but i couldn't ask him to take another photo again and now i've lost it Oh
1: no! <laughs> it definitely exists somewhere. I'm sure that in this, in these digital times, nothing yeah. is ever lost forever. I know. It's got to be out there. Yeah. So something that you mentioned before, before we came here, was how. Rob was sort of the first person that you were ever with who loved books as you loved them and had a similar
0: relationship to the one you did with them. Well, I think it's, when I told you that, I was thinking, God, that's really odd that I love books as much as I do. And the majority of men that I dated before him, it's not that they were not clever. (laughs) It's just that books were just not really their thing. I mean, I don't remember ever really talking to a guy that I dated about books Um, You know we didn't we definitely didn't do the airport thing you know where when you're going on holiday together and you go to an airport bookshop and then I met Rob and I remember when I went to his house for the first time I just noticed that there were a lot of books everywhere and it was always this it was this particular characteristic that he had where... He always had, so he was a Kiwi, so his style was quite relaxed and casual, so very often he'd wear a pair of jeans, if it was summer it would be a singlet, if it was winter it would be a t-shirt, but he always had a book in his kind of back pocket. I love that, the (laughs) t-shirt for warmth on those chilly winter days. And the singlet for ventilation. (laughs) Yeah. Um, but yeah, he always had a book in his back pocket. And I just remember um, books always being this part. I mean, he was he was quite quiet as a person. But he even if he went round someone's house, mm. like, I don't know how the hell he got away with this. He just kind of mooch over to their bookcase just pick up a book and then just sit in a corner and read it. And because it was Rob and he just did it in such a brazen way, he was allowed to do it. I think he even read a book at one of my friend's weddings. Wow. I know. Do you remember what the book was? No, I don't think it was anything that great. I just remember thinking, I hate hate you so much right now because you somehow (laughs) managed to get away with this. No one else seems to be able to, but yeah.
1: I was thinking about
0: AM, a non-reader
1: I dated who was a very big football fan. And once, when at his house, I read um, the... I, I don't quite know how to explain who this person is. I think he played for Hull. I read the biography of, <laughs> of Dean Windass because it was all that was there. And yeah. then when he took me to the football, the first thing he said was, you're not to bring a book.
0: <laughs> oh. That's just cruel. I mean, the was. thing... the thing. really was. I think some of the guys that I've dated before, which I think is possibly worse than saying you don't really read, is... Saying that, oh yeah, I only read, um, you know, those like really stern business books.
1: Oh God, yeah, the ones I like, get up at two in the morning. Yeah, and just press it. what's Mark, gonna... the ones that like How to live like Mark Wahlberg in his cryogenic chamber? <laughs>
0: I don't know. I don't know what those, yeah, he's those are. He's got
1: this mad like routine and it was legal. Oh yes, the he wakes internet. up at
0: like 3 a.m. Yes, and yeah. it's like
1: from yeah, yeah. 3.15 to 3.45. Yes. Family time. Wake up, family. Yeah. Family <laughs>
0: time. Yeah, fun times in his household. <laughs> um, yeah, those kind of books. But I I just feel like that's not really a book choice to mm-hmm. me. That's just you just don't want to look like a maniac, so those are the <laughs> books that you tend to buy and put on your bookshelf. But I don't think they really read them. I think it's just something that they have to say. But yeah, he um Rob loved books and it was we definitely had in a Venn diagram of uh books that we would share and that we liked but my god he hated Murakami. Like, he tried it, and he just said, no, I'm really sorry, I can't, this is garbage. And that was the one thing we just didn't see eye to eye on. Did he
1: try Sputnik Sweetheart? Is that his first He tried several. He so I
0: gave him Wind Up Bird Chronicle, actually, to begin with. Is that the short stories? No, that's the really chunky God, one. I don't know my bird <laughs> <laughs> at all. It's, a really, it's one of my favourites. And then I tried to give him Sputnik Sweetheart, but it just, it, it didn't take. And I also tried to give him David Sedaris, who is ah, lurking away over I there. i
1: ask you about David Sedaris, because I love him mm. so much, and those books look well-read. Yeah. But are any of these books, Are, they, are there? Is there anything here
0: that's, um, that belonged to Rob or was a gift for him, Rob? So when he passed away, there was a lot, he had a lot, a lot of books. And some of it was quite hard to look at. And some of it, just for practicality purposes, I couldn't keep in my flat. Because one of my friends moved in with me and I needed to actually create space for her. <laughs> so I gave a lot of them to charity. But I can see on the bookshelf... This is, I think, from his family. Um, oh, what wow. a boy should know, super old, right? That is beautiful. I'm just yeah. going to describe this
1: because it's this yeah. gorgeous kind of green. It, I said somewhere between Moss and O'Neill. I'm going to be pretentious mm. about it. It's a gorgeous cloth cover with a beautiful gold. Is there a word for that kind of inscription or plating on the front? It's in a very ornate box, What a boy should know, by um, Dr. A.T. Schofield and Dr. Percy Vaughan Jackson.
0: I should. And know. the Lightning
1: Thief. Yeah. <laughs> Not really. No. It was published by Castle and Company in 1914. So this is... I think it was For given Helen... to Rob by
0: his mum. I think it was actually... It's, it's the first... Long... Oh, it reprinted
1: mm. February 9th still. That is gorgeous. Yeah. So this is very... Um... Ah! I see a lot of God. God has given to every male these parts and in his wisdom has ordained them for a great purpose when full manhood is
0: reached, right? Wow. What a passage to pick out there, Daisy. It's almost like I sort of, I know, on some bizarre. I've never read it, if I'm being perfectly honest, but I just, I know that that book meant a lot that he was given that, mm. so I didn't want to so give did it away. So was
1: it in his family, did a grandparent of his own age? I'm not
0: or sure, or I just remember his mum handing it to him when we went over there um, in 2013.
1: Oh, so it was a, a relatively recent gift, it wasn't you know, like when everybody else was
0: getting a oh, cartoon puberty When he books. hit puberty, it's no, like, it's like what a boy <laughs> should know, you. here's read about your manhood. No, um, it, wasn't, it wasn't that, and I know that this... Um, Oh yes, yeah. So he yeah.
1: said that um the Hanif Qureshi is
0: Yeah, I think that. that's that's his and also there so Rob was a massive bird lover uh and nature enthusiast and there are books of his but I've put them on the bottom shelf which um let me have them down
1: this as well I've been doing squats in yeah. the gym purely to get
0: <laughs> the bottom shelf so he it seems like a really odd book but these oh. he used to keep these type of books so they're very you know, they've got classifications of newts. And this is not a book that I am ever going to reference. But he used to love taking these type of books on holiday. So this is, just so people know, A
1: Photographic mm-hmm. Guide to Reptiles and Amphibians of New Zealand by Tony Jewell. And I can't remember, because these are, I don't know if there are lots of, it's published by New Holland, but I've seen these. They're sort of,
0: they're the ones that are at
1: kind of paperback height, but half the width. Perfect for pockets. Yes,
0: perfect for pockets. I can definitely and tell you that. Of- there, yeah there are there are a few of those lurking around and I don't think I will ever get rid of those actually because they just remind me of him in a really nice way but we would occasionally which I think I showed you before was so this is ah. <laughs> pets with Tourettes uh. Mike.
1: Lepine and Mark Lee and I just want to tell the listeners that there is on the front a picture of a rabbit in a hat saying toss bag which isn't an insult I've heard but I'd quite like to bring back that
0: I mean I'm sorry but the theme just continues (laughs) it's like a single entendre isn't it 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 really is and um (laughs) So, yes, it's not exactly the most agreeable. Um,
1: I just want to say so, and um, the, the page that Vaughn opened at random, it's like it's a Labrador puppy with a, there was a bubble, a speech bubble coming out of his mouth, and it was just saying, hand job! <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh, and now we're looking at one which has a got rabbit. A, <laughs> um, a rabbit and a fish that looks like Dory saying, spunky chunks. <laughs> But this actually was more about the inscription. So this was, um, I wrote a Dear Rob, I saw this and thought of you, what that says about how relationship boggles the mind, which is just something that we used to do, I think. We used to just give each other books from time to time and just write inscriptions in there. The one book that he gave me, which I did start, and I think I'm going to, I think I, yeah, here we go, was this, and I tried. Oh, wow. Master
1: and Margarita yeah,
0: by Mikhail... Bulgakov, he absolutely loved this. It, I found it him. just quite difficult to get into. And, but I think for this, oh gosh, it's he... the inscription. Like, so Rob wrote this whole inscription in there and said that it was one of his favourite books. Um, and this, for me, I oh just... Oh, my God. I yeah, that. I know. Oh, love. I know. And so, oh, my God. You've actually succeeded in making Sorry. me vote. No, no, no. <laughs> Don't worry, I don't tend to, but this inscription, is, I is can it never okay get... to read this? Yes, so, do absolutely. Do you want
1: me to read it or would you like to read it?
0: Uh, I can read it. So, <clears throat> dearest, wonderful, lovely, beautiful, clever, funny, loving, perfect wife. The Master of Margarita is one of my favourite books, so I would like to make you a gift of this copy. I hope you enjoy reading it as much as I did the first time, Love from Your Loving Husband Rob. I did not enjoy this book. <laughs> <laughs> when I told him. I his feel like face he just has a hug. I know. Bring it in. I know. Oh, God. Daisy, I never get emotional. But <laughs> yeah, I mean... he's got going, going around making people cry. I was just... Because <laughs> like, like, he kept asking me, he was like, have you, start, have you started it? And I was like, no, no, I'm going to get to it. Knowing full well that I'd started it. And I was like, this is horrendous. I just can't continue. And then eventually, I just had to fess up and I said, I'm really sorry, but this book is just nuts and i just can't get on board with it and i think but i will always keep that even though i know i will never read that book as long as i live that inscription was just i think i came across it when i had moved into this flat because i was just thinking oh it's that book again and i couldn't remember that that was the inscription inside of it but yeah yeah that is very precious i would say
1: Uh, and I do think it's really really sort of fascinating and lovely Mm. to love someone and you both love books together but you don't necessarily love the same books together but that's okay I think it's what the world needs now as well. In this time when we're really polarised about opinions, like, you have to love this, and you can't hate this, and I hate this. And actually, we can all love each other very much by having quite big differences of opinion and sort of culture.
0: I agree. There is a part of me that sometimes gets, um, I mean, I don't know if intimidated is the word, because I just feel I'm too old to be intimidated in that manner, But when people, for example, quote, you know, great passages from books, or they seem very erudite, or they still read very important books, you know, or they say, oh, when Proust used to say, and I don't remember like half of my stuff from my time at university. So I will never be that person that can quote passages. But I've just realized that actually, and as you can see from my bookshelf, not only is it disorganized, um, but there is a lot of, I would say, fluff on there so there is what my brother-in-law calls fairy porn which is Sarah J Maas who is lurking down there um but I love her and I think I absolutely love her books and I think they're just very easy to read and you know for me I I love those books as much as I love books that are considered to be important in terms of literature. And I think I'm just too old to be shamed into thinking otherwise, really.
1: Well, I suppose that is the absolute joy of a book, mm. isn't it? Is it sort of, I think every single book, there. Are, this book is a million books. If a million people read it, that makes it a million different books. And if you, you know, because I, I do think these stories really 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 stay in your head and there are books like lots like I love romantic comedies and I love fiction and things that you know people will think like a totally throwaway but I'll read you know quote unquote important books and not be able to tell you what happened not remember what happened but I can tell you exactly who fell in love with who when yeah um also I love it says contains mature content not suitable for younger readers which you know if I was like (laughs) I I will get past the magical realism for the sex (laughs)
0: Well, one day... Uh, so I have a four-year-old niece, and one day that's going to be her version of a grotty little Mills and So,
1: yeah. And you will pretend you can't see her take
0: it from the shelf, but you'll give it to
1: her.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah.
1: Um, so I wanted to ask you about mm. the David Sedaris. Um, yes. Because I think lots of people love him, and I think he's a really interesting mm. writer, maybe women like us, because he's someone who writes about his life in a very honest and very, very funny way. Do you... Feel as though you've ever been inspired by him or borrowed from him and that I can write about my life sense.
0: I think that yes, yes, definitely to some of what you've asked. So the first book of his that I ever read was When You Are Engulfed in Flames. What I would say with David Sedaris is he is an excellent diarist, which is what we know about his writing anyway. But I really like how dark some of the observations are because it's kind of like the mean stuff that... You're thinking in your head, yeah. but you, half the time you're surrounded by people that don't think it's really appropriate to vocalise it. But he does vocalise it, not just in his books, but to other people around him and then chronicles their reaction to something that he said. And I definitely, I think that what I've learned from him, for sure about humour, is that it is possible to comment on something fairly serious or be able to move quite quickly between dark and light and to be able to have humour in that. And that's definitely something that I like to use in my own writing. Because you have to laugh at stuff.
1: You really do. The world is a dark and difficult place. It really is. And sometimes I think that's all we have.
0: I was really shocked about... So he chronicles a lot about his early drug use so which i found like really shocking because he describes his whole you know really normal upbringing with all of his siblings and so on but he also talks about his drug use in like a completely matter-of-fact way (laughs) and i actually and i realize this is a lofty claim i have never read anyone in who writes in that manner in a similar style in the way that he does about his alcohol and drug use. And I have to say that I think that there's quite an art to doing that, in that he writes about it, but it doesn't really define him. Yes, absolutely.
1: Even someone like Kat Marnell, who I love, and I really loved her memoir, and I think that she... I'm interested in her because... I think especially when it comes to women, it's like, I was a terrible,
0: terrible mess, but now I'm fine. And, yeah. you know, I got thin and all found Jesus and it's fine. So there is Paul Theroux there, who is someone that I loved and actually really got me interested in the idea of kayaking and travelling, um, particularly this book, Fresh Air Fiend, which he signed, I think, memory. Oh, wow. From memory. Did you meet him? I did. So it was, a uh, yes, I remember exactly when this was. This was in 2008 when I decided to go on... A break from work. I'm not going to give it a title like a sabbatical because that's too good for what it was. But I basically went to India for three months and I decided that I didn't want to work and I just wanted to travel around, which is what I did. Except I spent all of my money within the first three weeks of traveling and then had to take a job in Mumbai for a month. On
1: just having a nice time?
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yes, I had a very very nice time. But I had to work in... No, so nothing to show for it, but good times and bad photos. Excellent. <laughs> but when I was in Mumbai, um, and so I really, really was into Paul Theroux in a massive way. I saw that he was doing a talk at our local bookshop. And Mumbai is a huge city. So I just saw this as a sign from whatever the universe that I had to go to this talk and, you know, and I was reading this book. So Fresh Air Fiend, which is about, I don't know if you want to read the book. Oh, so you were reading yeah.
1: that when you discovered yeah. he was Sorry, in I, town. I, I can't
0: verify what that stain is. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, thought it, I thought it was part of the jacket
0: design, to yeah, let's, be honest. Yeah, let's, let's go with that.
1: <laughs> wow. Yeah. I like the bit about relating his uh, experiments with biblical dieting.
0: So I don't really remember the biblical dieting. I think what was just in that a lot was... Um, so I'd never been kayaking before. And when he, he chronicles some of his uh, experiences going out in a kayak, and I think it's just basically about... This entire book is about being in the outdoors. And I had this book with me while I was travelling. And he I got him to sign it. And I remember asking him... Uh, so I just said, look... Because I, I was very hyper-aware of it at the time... I just said, as a single woman traveling around, and especially traveling around in India, I just said, I feel like there are things open to men that aren't open to women. And I feel quite self-conscious in a way that I would assume that men traveling around don't really feel like that. And I said, it just doesn't seem that fair. And... What he said to me, and I don't know, this didn't... I was like, oh, okay, thanks. But he, he did answer the question, and so I was just, oh, my God, both were answering. But he's used some weird analogy, like gazelles and how basically gazelles get attacked by lions. And what he was trying to say to me, which I do understand, but at the same time I just thought this doesn't really help my cause. Because mm. I wanted to do all of the stuff that Paul through did. Yeah, of course. But I felt quite held back by the fact of my own safety yeah. around that as a woman. But what he was trying to say was as a woman travelling on your own, you, you stand out more because there are fewer of you who do that and also that's not the world order, right? That we're in. But it didn't, and it made sense, but at the same time, it didn't really give any comfort because I thought, oh, so okay. His answer is basically, yeah, sucks to be you. <laughs> yeah, pretty much.
1: <laughs> <sighs> bloody patriarchy.
0: Bloody, bloody patriarchy. Yeah, it has got on a bit better because there are, just because since when I travelled around on my own in 2008 to, I don't know, 10 years later or whatever, you know, it is a different landscape and I still do travel a lot on my own. But having said that, yeah, it still sucks, because...
1: <laughs> you, you could have given me some good advice there, Paul Theroux. Uh, so can you tell me hmm. about um, your your new book? Because obviously, you know, you wrote a hugely, hugely successful memoir, and I've seen so many people who really just, you know, loved that and responded to it. How much are you allowed to talk about your new book?
0: It's called In Search of Silence, and really, to be perfectly frank, after I wrote the first book, because the first book... Uh, Chase the Rainbow had a very definite purpose, and the idea was there. So, for example, on this bookshelf you will see Joan Didion's Year of Magical Thinking, and there are various books on here that I bought after Rob passed away to make sense of his death and how I felt about grief and so on. Mm. Now, Joan Didion's book is is fantastic, and she is obviously a superb writer, but I couldn't relate to it at all because. She lost her husband when she was a lot older and, you know, and I read various books in and around processing grief, Mm. but there was nothing really that summed up how I felt and how I thought about it. And so that's why the first book came about, because I just thought, okay, I need a, books are how I relate to the world. I need to put out a book that sums up how I feel, because also there doesn't seem, I can't, I'm not, I know I'm not alone in this, so there must be other people roughly a similar age to me who might be thinking or feeling so, like was that. Was it
1: that you wanted something that was sufficiently, not sufficiently emotionally impactful, but that had that, that was maybe as focused on the feelings as much as the story and the, the how and the why?
0: Yeah, and I think, I think just reflection, a reflection of yourself in, in books, because I think that some of the books that I really love and relate to is because I can see parts of my experience and myself reflected in those books right which is how a lot of people relate to reading but all of a sudden I was in this position where I just didn't see any of that and I and there was this big part of myself that wasn't articulated anywhere and so that definitely writing that book was about being able to do that the second book and I mean I'm really glad that you know the book had the impact that it had But the second book is a bit of a departure from that. Uh, But I hadn't planned to write a second book because it wasn't like I got into writing the first book because I thought I want to get into writing books. Mm. It was just there was a definite goal. I achieved that goal by writing it. And I think my publisher just said, look, are you thinking about writing another book? And I just said, not really. You know, it's not really in the plans. But then I told her about my plan to go off and travel for a bit and you know and what I was thinking about in terms of my life and so on and she said well that actually sounds like it might be a good follow-on and it did feel a bit like I felt quite strange thinking about it in that way because I think as a lot of people do you just think well I don't really know why anyone would be interested in my perspective on x y and z and then I think once I got over that I just thought, okay, well, this second book is actually about a search for meaning. It's not necessarily about happiness, which is one of the things that I know that a lot of people want for me and they want me to be happy because if I'm happy, then it means that, you know, Rob's passing away wasn't something that irrevocably broke my life. Um, But I, I kind of was still left asking all of these big questions and getting quite resentful actually of other people whose lives had moved on or were progressing in the way that they were supposed to be. Mm. And also I think when you use happiness as a compass, it's, it's really hard because if you don't feel happy for whatever reason, Mm -hmm. so like, let's say you're struggling with your mental health or, you know, bad stuff has happened or trauma or whatever, it can kind of isolate you. And this entire trip was about, I think, figuring some of that stuff out, asking the questions again around my life being able to chronicle some of it so my eyeline is just drawn towards David Sidaris, but just some of the observational stuff around that and what people say and the places that you find yourself in and also it was just because I just wanted to take myself away from the chatter so looking at the title of the book I got really grumpy and I just thought no the problem the problem is other people <laughs> Which sounds like a misanthrope's encyclopedia.
1: <laughs> sounds like the times I've fantasised about putting on an out-of-office. It's just like, can everybody just please fuck off? Thank <laughs> you. I'd love that as a yeah. subtitle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's sort of, would you say you've been inspired to any point by, by Paul through and the travel writers you love? Or do you think it's a more of a, it's not a travel book, but it's a book about other things where travel is an element of, of life?
0: Travel is definitely an element of life. The thing that I was very hesitant, and I'm trying to figure out how to word this politely. The thing I didn't want to do is woman goes on trip, woman finds self, woman is happy.
1: I think I know what you're alluding to. (laughs) Yes, I think you do.
0: (laughs) And and that's why I was really hesitant to write a second book because I just thought I can't stand those books, and um and life doesn't work like that, and it's not in bite-sized chunks Mm. and I don't know whether we feel a sense of needing to do that more than men because there is a pressure on our success and how we manage all of those different components of our life so having you know your work your kids your love life in balance someone like David Sedaris wouldn't give a fuck about that like he wouldn't feel the need to like bung on a happy ending Mm. at the end of his essays like he just tells life how it is God I feel like David Sedaris should give me like a stipend for all of the yes. you know? But yeah so it, 50 quid it's quid at least. It, yeah thanks well hundred um, yeah but <laughs> it's just you know the, life isn't isn't tied up as neatly i i don't find in male writing as i do as i feel that sometimes is done with female writing because this entire thing, for want of a better word, cheesy and cliche though it is, it's a journey that doesn't have an ending until the day that you die. I think a big part of this is related to to Rob passing away, is that I don't believe that the universe is going to save me or is going to fix me or that there's going to be some predestined plan for me or how my life turns out. And I think i'd been yeah. through
1: what you've been through and yeah someone said well everything happens for a reason i, I think didn't... i'd punch them in the face
0: i i honestly sometimes have to sit on my hands when someone says that to me because i just i don't i the thing is if i'm being kind about it i don't think people follow that thought to its final conclusion yeah. because i don't think they realize what that means for some people like let's say if you've experienced a trauma right and basically what they're saying to you is oh that trauma that like Uh, has taken you a lot to get over and um, affects you on a daily basis. That was part of some... Because if I knew that someone... I would kick that person in the balls, the person who had created that plan, because why would you... But I don't think people, I don't think people mean it maliciously. No. I just don't think they thought about what that means think, for you. I think
1: they want you to hope, but they don't know. They don't think about yeah. everything that's underneath it. I yeah. do think yeah, yeah. about, um, you know, messy clothes on a chair. And that when it comes to emotions, I think there are lots of kind of neat freaks out there. He absolutely cannot deal with the idea of anything being sort of messy or on display. So like, say so you're happy, so we can't see it and we don't have to worry <laughs> and fix that.
0: Yeah, it's I mean it is like that. Or or I think it's just that we're searching for a solution because realizing you're the solution is really, really scary. Mm. So realizing that you are the person that is going to have to I'm not saying that's that sounded a bit I'm not saying that there aren't things that might be influenced or impacted by other things and I definitely am not saying that I know all of the workings of the universe and you know and it's as final as that I just don't really think that anyone is going to create that sort of happiness for me and by that like so a lot of people when you say something like that go oh you know but like what about dating and are you going to meet someone else and I'm just like well I'm not saying that that's off the cards and yes I am single and yes I am dating and so on but I'm just saying that, that if I don't meet someone, that doesn't mean that the universe didn't have some, you know, someone out there for me or whatever. It just meant that that's just how things worked out. And I think for me there was like a, I don't want to rely on something like that to sort yeah. my life out because I have to sort my life out.
1: Huge thanks to Porna. Please do follow her on social media at PornaBell. Read Chase the Rainbow immediately if you haven't already and pre-order In Search of Silence. Future you will thank you. I'm Daisy Buchanan. Thanks so much for joining me, fellow book inspectors. You can find me on social media at NotRollerGirl and on Instagram at The Daisy B. Say hello, suggest some guests and watch out for shelfies. Visit our show page, acast.com slash booked for more information about our guests and a list of the books they've talked about. If you have any other queries about the podcast, you can email us at ybooked at gmail.com. That's the letter Y, booked at gmail.com. Your book is produced by Dale Shaw, for New Alaska, and hosted by ACAST. Please do subscribe, rate us, and leave a review. It's great to hear what you think, and it helps other people find the podcast. I'll see you next week for a spot more bookshelf bothering. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.